The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box. U.S. stocks fall sharply, the Nasdaq turning negative on the year after Fed Chair Jerome Powell fails to reassure investors over surging bond yields and growing inflation concerns. It's a broad range of financial conditions that we're looking at, and that, that's really the key. It's, it's many things, and we want to see and would be concerned if we didn't see disorderly conditions. Uh, orderly conditions in markets, and we don't want to see a persistent tightening in, over, in broader financial conditions. Oil extends gains as producers keep their powder dry and hold back from unleashing a torrent of crude into the market amid continued demand uncertainty. Nobody's going to withdraw me to talk about prices. I don't care about prices. I care about uh, discipline. I care about bringing uh, uh, inventories to uh, uh, China announces an annual growth target of more than 6% for this year as the country's annual parliamentary session kicks off in Beijing. And Italy blocking an AstraZeneca vaccine shipment to Australia as the continent tries to shore up its slow vaccine rollout but risks triggering a global backlash. What are the chances, Karen? What are the chances that the uh, man at the helm, and it is a man, unfortunately, um, what is the what is the chance that the man at the helm of the world's most se- powerful central bank failed to settle markets with his talk about inflation? I think there is a, uh, a bit of a ruse here. We know the Fed wants two percent. We know the Fed believes in transitory inflation. And yet, people that are writing about the Federal Reserve this morning are all saying Jay Powell failed. Did he fail or did he deliberately choose not to reassure investors? Look, we know what the consequences are. This is how the markets performed across the session. My apologies, the Nasdaq's just slipped back to zero here. But it was, again, the market that led us significantly lower. And the implications are, of course, sorry, as we look at the the, the week to date here, the uh, implications are, of course, that um, we're going to close out the week in well, poor shape if you're a tech investor, off 3.5% here and you're still long those growth stocks. And across the rest of the major US indices, you've had a little bit of a pause, obviously, in the ascent that we've seen uh, since the uh, American government and the Federal Reserve started pump priming and throwing money at the pandemic problem. 
We've still got $1.9 trillion here potentially coming into the market, some of that through checks that uh, individuals will receive. So you have to make a decision at this point as you look at the way the indices are performing here, whether this is part of a watershed moment where we see a new weaker trend emerging for equities or whether indeed this is just a momentary pause while the markets reflect on the level of interest rates and inflation and contemplate their next steps here. So quite a lot to chew over this morning. But Karen, I I still think there may be something slightly wrong with the way the market is analysing Jay Powell's comments. I cannot believe that such a seasoned performer deliberately chose to fail to give the markets guidance that would reassure them and put the bid back in equities. Well, I mean, there's been history where the Fed has failed on communication before. Is that one of those moments? But don't forget, there's a bit of repetition in the pattern here. Jay Powell coming out, becoming very dovish in his commentary still and staying very patient, I guess. And central bank speaker, he's going to do whatever it takes to stay patient. I mean, that's sort of the messaging, right? And we saw a week ago in testimony that effectively he was going to try and let the economy run a little bit hot to get back to target on the growth rate and on the unemployment rate. But what did the market do this time? The other week, you may recall, you got a little bit of a move into the green, but then a sell-off in the following days. This time, it didn't even stick in session. So the words are not carrying much impact at this point. But I would say, is that healthier? In the past, we've had very dovish central banks and markets have run hot. They've kept on climbing to to fresh levels. But this time around, you've got a dose of caution from the the bond markets in particular, and you've had a negative reaction. Perhaps that is healthier. Let's just take a look at those technology names because it was uh, this section of the market that has uh, very much been pounded this week. We talk about the NASDAQ falling and and, then correction territory down 10%, but also negative uh, for the year. It's a lot of these names that have been the catalyst for that selling, as you can see. Apple in particular over the course of the week, but in session a little bit more resilient at the margin versus some of the other stocks after some of the front-loaded selling we've already witnessed. 1.6 down in session yesterday. Uh, Facebook leaning against the trend. I thought that was quite interesting. Amazon has been one of the weaker components that you've seen in the sell-off. In fact, it's these three stocks, Apple, Facebook and Amazon, where you have seen fairly concentrated selling in recent sessions. Tesla. I think you can separate out some of the FANG stocks from some of the higher movers, some of the high-flying stocks. And Tesla very much in that category. It's been done uh, fairly aggressively in some of the sellers. Also part of that ARK fund. A lot of investors have watched the big momentum stocks. Tesla being one of them, Square, Roku. And uh, that ARK fund that a lot of investors have now seen fall from 20% from its peak in February. So that is in bear market territory as we talk about correction in some quarters. Some areas actually in bear market territory. Uh, a quick look at uh, U.S. technology over the course of the week while we've weathered this storm. You can see Apple down nine-tenths of a percent. Bigger falls in Amazon. I think that's curious as we talk about pent-up demand and being at the forefront of some of the trends that we're still witnessing on the retail side, but also on the cloud side. Amazon still a stock that's been reversing. Perhaps that is purely a valuation story. Uh, Tesla, I think that tells the story about how these big momentum high-flying stocks have been harder hit in the market route. Steve. Thank you, Karen. Good morning to you both. Well, let's have a look at the Treasury, shall we, as well. And uh, looking at the yield curve, again, I kind of can't buy into this panic story just yet, everybody. I've got to say, this route that the headline writers are trying to talk about as well. But I will go through the curve with you all. Two-year paper trading at a mighty 0.147, OK? Two-year money, 
yield 1.147. The five-year 0.79, the 10-year 1.57, as the, that's the one we're all concentrating on, 20-year 2.2, and 30-year a mighty 2.33% as well. But if we dig a little bit deeper into the 10-year Treasury, I just want to do one thing before we get to a bit about Powell Sound, and I know we're going to talk about the market afterwards as well. If the COVID year was an extraordinary year where nothing in the rule book really worked. So we, we went to uh, extreme levels on just about everything, on support mechanisms, on yields, on markets, you name it as well. So why don't we just try and do something which is a bit academic here? Why don't we strip out the COVID year and work out where bond yields are now compared with where they were before? I know it's only an academic exercise, but I try and put things in context, as indeed Jeff and Karen were just doing just there as well. So what, ladies and gentlemen, do you think is the start of the period before COVID. I think it's pretty much December 2019, isn't it? Because, of course, throughout 2020, we had a vast amount of oscillation and volatility and violence and what have you. So where was the 10-year Treasury yield uh, in just before Christmas last year? Was it 1%, 1.5%? Was it? No, it wasn't. It was 1.92%. And where was it uh, at the start of that year? Yeah, somewhere in the region of 3%. So roughly double where we are now. Now, I know that that's an academic exercise, but I just want to put the current Treasury yield measures in context, given the fact that we are expecting strong economic growth to continue in the United States this year. We've got an unemployment rate, which we're all watching for this afternoon as well. So just putting the current moves in context. And I've got a bit more context for you later on, but we're going to have a chat about that. Right, so these sharp moves in Treasury yields uh, and US equities come as the Fed Chair Jerome Powell again reiterated the FOMC's policy of allowing inflation to overshoot its 2% target. Investors were hoping for a change in strategy from the Fed amid the spike in yields. Well, which investors? I'll just leave that one questioning there. But also Powell said any short-term inflationary pressures uh, would be temporary. He said that before, hasn't he? We do expect that uh, as uh, as the economy reopens and, and hopefully picks up, um, we'll see inflation move up uh, through base effects, which means uh, uh, just that the very low readings of March and April will fall out of the 12-month uh, window, and also through a surge, if you will, in, uh, in spending that may come as the economy fully reopens. And that could create some upward pressure on prices. The, the, the real question is how large those effects will be and whether they will be sustained or more transitory. So let me just finish off. I talked to you why I don't believe this move in treasuries at the moment is that magnificent compared to where we've been over a long term period. And I want to just expand it to the markets as well, because my quote, my read there said investors were hoping for a change in strategy. Well, not all investors. Some investors actually want to see an accurate repricing of money so that we can get an accurate repricing of markets, of valuations and of debts as well. And we've got a wonderful chart, actually, uh, on where the trailing valuations are uh, of the technology companies. And guess what, everybody? Despite the moves we're seeing, we're still not far away from the highs on yield, uh, beg pardon, PEs on a trailing basis where we were when? When do you think, everybody? Yeah, two 2002, just after the dot-com bubble burst as well. And I just want to put some of these moves into context as well for everybody as well. The Dow is off 3.4% from its high. That is nowhere near correction territory, ladies and gentlemen. It is nowhere near bear market territory. Uh, it is 70% off its low. So we've come a long way. It's a call to market, in case you've forgotten. They sometimes are two-way instruments. The S&P, what do you reckon that? Is that near correction territory? No, 
It's down 4.6% from its record highs and 72% off its lows of the last 52 weeks. Yes, the Nasdaq is down 10%, which is just tipping itself into correction territory. But given the fact that the Nasdaq has rallied 92%, it's hardly surprising, given what I just said about valuations as well, that the concern about their future cash flows is being uh, thought about a little bit more, considering uh, the fact that these companies, and a lot of them, not all of them, a lot of them don't make quite the kind of money uh, that would justify these kind of valuations. I'll leave it there for you two to debate. Steve, I'll throw Apple into the mix to talk about correction territory. It's pretty much there, 9.5% down from its high. Uh, the point that I'm, I want to make, though, is are we uh, talking about moves that have been done now or moves that continue, whether we're seeing bearish signals uh, as we move below the 50-day moving average on the major indices uh, from the S&P down to the NASDAQ? Is this signaling more selling to come? And I just wonder whether this is all part of a broader reshuffling story. I mean, we heard yesterday from one of our guests who was uh, uh, very good with his, his opinions and his uh, perspective. He was talking about a, a tactical uh, portfolio where you don't want to be invested in technology, but strategically you do because that's where some of the long-term earnings growth is. And I think that's the problem. Tactically, short-term, you're seeing this rotation in the markets away from the COVID winners tactically to areas that have been missing out uh, from the, some of the pandemic pain that we've witnessed. So investors are picking up those stocks. And where's the money coming out of? It's coming out of sectors that have performed very, very well, namely technology. And you think about Apple going back to that stock that's fallen aggressively. Uh, we saw one of the catalysts around the sell-off initially was around Berkshire Hathaway reducing its stake. That said, it's still a huge chunk of the portfolio. And I think that's the same case for a lot of investors. These stocks will still be a huge part of uh, those uh, portfolios that have already been constructed, yet tactically short term, there's going to be some noise because the money's being reweighted elsewhere. So are we seeing a buying opportunity then potentially around some of these technology names if you're a long-term investor, Steve? But, but Karen, how different a company is Apple from where it was, I don't know, let's say in the tail end of 2019? And I'll say that just before you get the chance to answer. The answer is not actually very different company. It was a great company uh, in, Feb in September 19, and it's a great company now. We we none of us doubt that. And, and you're absolutely right to say it's come off a decent way. But let me just remind viewers where it was trading just over a year and a half ago, about a year and a half ago. It was 50 bucks. Oh, sorry, one. Yeah, 54.69. It's now still, despite everything you just said, 120 bucks. No one is doubting that this is a magnificent company in many, many ways and has reinvented the rule book and continues to do so and defies gravity. But it's trading over double where it was just a year and a half ago. This thing just doesn't, that kind of move doesn't happen historically when you look back at previous periods. It doesn't last forever. Yeah, talking of not lasting forever, Steve, interesting. I wonder when uh, we now get the review of whether Tesla remains in the S&P here. And I think that's emblematic of what you're pointing out here is that we've come a very long way very quickly. And at this point, we have what looks to be a market pause. And I think, Karen, you made a terrific point at the wall here about how does Powell want to take his market pain? Does he want a slow release of the gas in the bubble or does he want a dramatic market correction that will raise all sorts of concerns about market instability? As Powell pointed out, I think we are not seeing disorderly activity in bond markets. This is a gradual or a gentle rise in the yield at the 10-year level that has upset those who are at the fringes on the risk curve at this point. Let, let me throw in a, a, another point here. 
put your hand to your ear to your ear and, and cup it and listen hard because Karen talked about noise and the one thing you need to try and do at the moment is X out that noise and look at what central banks can't control. Central banks can control the yield curve. We know that Powell can do that and we're getting a an exemplary display of that from central banks around the world as they manage bond yields. They can also do a pretty good job of controlling equity prices. We've seen the Bank of Japan do that and we know that they can do that to a certain extent through the use of the yield curve. What they can't really control is the FX market because these are huge markets globally and the fact that the dollar has been strengthening and the fact that we've had a pushback against risk on currencies in the emerging world, I think is the more pertinent message that's coming through this particular market phase. And I think it is just a little tug from the FX markets and it is people saying, we understand that there is a lot of risk locked in places that maybe we don't understand. And one way that you can hedge yourself against that is to own a currency or assets in a currency that looks more stable and secure at this point. So I just think that watch the dollar, watch the action of other currencies against the dollar for your sense of where perhaps we may go in other asset classes at this point. And I think it's very instructive that even as we've seen this yield rise and people panic about, oh no, this is the end of the risk on trade, gold has only fallen through this period. So it's not as though people are going incredibly defensive in precious metals. In fact, if anything, they're just edging back into dollar. That to me suggests they're not saying that's it, we're picking up our stumps and we're going home. It just suggests that actually we're rearranging the field at this point because we want to make sure that we're there to catch the ball when the batter hits the big one. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, gold has been toying with death cross for a couple of weeks now, so it's uh, approaching those uh, deadly technicals. But, uh, you know, we heard it from fund managers uh, a number of months ago that they were diversifying away into more of the FX trade. And I think you're right to point out that that's where you are seeing some of the moves. Just circling back to the markets and what we're going to witness, though, I mean, we talk about a fairly violent sell-off. Tech stocks have moved very aggressively to the upside. It's very feasible that if you get momentum, that you reclaim some some of those losses very quickly in one or two sessions. It may take a while to go down, but when you go back up, you can move very aggressively to the upside. So again, if you think you've got an entry point, you position around it. Uh, Jerome Powell sparked a fresh reflation trade after his dovish comments on Thursday for more on how investors can play this out. Uh, take a look at uh, CNBC Pro. Of course, when we say reflation trade, we mean the inflation risk trade rather than the big macro. I want to buy cyclicals on the back of this story. But CNBC Pro, a lot of pieces on how you play the rise in bond yields. Go take a look uh, if you are subscribed. I think it's fair to say the inflation fears have been uh, really coming from the truckload of stimulus investors in the bond market have been eyeing. And the U.S. Senate has begun debating the $1.9 trillion stimulus package ahead of a March 14 deadline. When a federal jobless aid program expires, these are live shots coming through now as Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the chamber will vote by the end of the week on the bill, which includes a fresh round of direct payments, state funding and extended unemployment benefits. Steve. 
So let's have a look at Brent crude, 67.63. It's up another 1.3%. Spiked yesterday. This after OPEC and its allies decided to largely maintain output cuts through to April. The oil cartel is withholding over 7 billion million barrels per day from the market. And Saudi Arabia also extending its own voluntary cut of 1 million barrels per day. Saudi Energy Minister Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman said adherence to the cuts was key. You can't keep breaching people cautiousness, cautiousness, and cautiousness, and you don't deliver uh, in how you can demonstrate your cautiousness. And because of that, we've elected to extend the voluntary cut for another million in April. Not only that, I think we have all congregated that uh, to the idea that we will uh, continue the uh, business as usual, which is meeting uh, every month. Right, we've got a great guest for you now. Martin Ratz is the global oil strategy at Morgan Stanley and joins us now. And Martin, I'm just looking at your absolutely fresh off the uh, printer copy now as well. And it's hard to disagree with a lot of what you're saying. You're basically a structural bull on the oil market, but you make a great point a little bit lower down on the front page where you're saying, look, the problem here might well be for a medium term uh, gravitational pull because we're now trading 15 to 20 bucks above the break evens for shale. Uh, and that's very interesting indeed, isn't it? Good morning, Martin. Yeah, good morning. Yeah, no, you're touching on an excellent point. Look, this is not the story for 2021. In 2021, um, it, um, uh, shale can practically not ramp up fast enough. You need to add rigs, drill wells, complete them. But when you start to think about 2022, specifically the second half of 2022 and into 2023, yeah, then, then shale can respond. And um, look, there is a new narrative in the shale patch, which is capital discipline. Um, a lot of operators are saying even at higher oil prices, we'll be cautious adding rigs because we know uh, that has been somewhat self-defeating in the past. But nevertheless, you have to um, you have to wonder when you look at some of these charts of where break-evens are versus where not just spot oil prices, but say 12-month forward oil prices are, which are hedgeable prices. Operators can lock those in. The spreads between forward prices and break-evens is rather wide already by now. Yeah, I, I'm just going back to what um, His Excellency managed to do yesterday. He managed to hold them together, kept the Russians pretty much in line as well. But of course, they've done a lot of the heavy lifting themselves. Is this because they're terrified of what happened just over a year ago? <laughs> well, let's face it, WTI expired around about, what are we thinking now, about 98 bucks lower than where it's currently trading. Yeah, no, it's it's quite extraordinary. Look, around um, OPEC, you always have um, a, a key debate of what OPEC should do sort of in the long run. Should it um, go for market share? Because OPEC uh, sits on much more of the world's oil resources uh, than they have of world's oil production. So over time, particularly if you're worried about, say, peak in oil demand at some point, you may want to say, well, it's actually in OPEC's interest to start growing its market share. But a growing market share, of course, while adding barrels back to the market, which drives prices down in the short run. The alternative strategy for OPEC is to say, no, we, we, we go for higher prices now and, and we let the long run take care of itself. We'll see where we are in a couple of years from now. And that, that trade-off, high prices for the short run or better market share for the long run, that is the perennial OPEC trade-off. And I think what OPEC has now done, I think really for the third or fourth meeting in a row, is starting to signal quite clearly that the priority is on the right here right now um, getting prices into a, a zone where they feel comfortable with their fiscal break-evens and what have you. 
and that perhaps this story about market share for the long run, well, maybe that's for another day. That's not where the, where the priority or the key concerns lie. Martin, uh, let's go 3D on this. You heard us probably having a conversation at the top of the show about why the dollar's getting stronger, why yields are getting stronger. And I don't think we can exclude oil from this story, can we? What are the risks here that uh, by pursuing this strategy, what they're ultimately going to be doing is destroying demand in emerging economies? I know the Indians came out very quickly after the announcement and said, this is going to be a disaster for us. Yeah, no, look, um, I think this is, an, this is a very fair comment. Um, it's all sort of very exciting in the moment and oil prices are going up now. I think for the long running, for the long suffering shareholder in energy companies, uh, this is not unwelcome. I can tell you that. But at the same time, um, the oil market doesn't need 70 or $80 oil um, in the long run to match supply and demand. Uh, and when prices go to those levels, over a period of a few years, other things kick in. We talked about shale coming back. There's non-OPEC supply that can start to gain market share. But also on the demand side, there are clearly things uh, that can happen. Um, the, in the short run, oil demand is relatively price inelastic. But, it, it, but, but that is not the case over the period uh, of, a, of a few years. So it, when you're starting to think about sort of you know, the prices that we're now ent- entering into, yeah, you can wonder what will that do ultimately to the demand recovery in 2022 and 2023. Again, this is not a 2021 story. For now, it looks pretty darn good for the next sort of six, 12 months. But ultimately, this also erodes demands to a degree, um, accelerates the energy transition and the move away from oil. All of those things are to be um, are to be considered, and those those effects are real. I, I think I think OPEC might well be slightly overcooking it here. See you this morning. Thanks for the analysis. Martin Ratz, the uh, global oil strategist for Morgan Stanley. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, We're going to talk some more about that other major economy that is a heavy user of oil, China. It's restored its annual GDP forecast, but has cooled down growth expectations at the annual National People's Congress. More details on the announcements when we come back. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. China has tempered recovery expectations for 2021, setting a minimum 6% economic growth target for the full year below the 8% many had expected. Premier Li Keqiang restored the forecast this year after dropping it in 2020 due to the pandemic. The main projected targets for development this year are as follows. GDP growth of over 6%, over 11 million new urban jobs, a surveyed urban unemployment rate of around 5.5%, CPI increase of around 3%, steady increases in both volume and quality of imports and exports, a basic equilibrium in the balance of payments, steady growth in personal income, a further improvement in the environment, a drop of around 3% in energy consumption per unit of GDP. 
Uh, Li Keqiang uh, talking about the new targets. Sam, I mean, this year, one imagines just because of the base effects, they'll be able to hit this uh, 6% relatively easily. But what's the symbolic importance of putting a hard number on the table? Good morning to you, Jeff. Well, firstly, I think it came as a little bit of a surprise because many weren't expecting one after last year. But certainly uh, the fact that China wanted to give an indication uh, to the market, I think, is important because by setting this benchmark, I think really is a sign of China's confidence in the government being able to control the spread of the virus, but also the economy in being able to bounce back from the impacts of that. So it was fairly modest, a bit of a low bar. And there has been some suggestion uh, that by doing this now gives authorities at the wiggle room to really uh, focus on high quality growth and move away from this high speed growth. And that is all part of this dual circulation growth strategy, uh, which aims to prioritise the domestic economy now and move away from this reliance uh, on exports. The government now wants to focus really on boosting domestic uh, demand and also consumption. It will be interesting to see uh, what sort of structural reforms they may actually implement. But this is all part of the five-year plan now, which Premier Li Keqiang unveiled today. In order to achieve this goal, the government said that it will build a tax system that helps expand investment, but also focus on innovation. And we know that this uh, sort of self-reliance and self-sufficiency will be a key focus, particularly in the tech space. Now, in thrashing out its uh, economic uh, uh, path for the next year, uh, other targets included consumer price inflation around 3%, the budget deficit around 3.2%. So scaled down a bit as uh, China's economic recovery uh, has staged a pretty strong comeback. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.